Well, we're going to be in John 17 this morning. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to uh, turn there with me. Our custom here is to work our way through books of the Bible, kind of section by section. We'll take, we'll take a section, we'll go through it, and then move on to the next one on the, on the next Sunday. We just spent uh, six months in the book of, book of Acts, and, and before that, most of 2019 and part of 2020, we were in John's Gospel, the fourth uh, Gospel of the Bible. And because of where Easter fell, we, we had to kind of skip over John chapter 17, and I promised to you then that we'd come back and look at it, and that's what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks. Very rich, very dense, uh, just incredible stuff in this chapter, John chapter 17. Uh, when Janine and I got engaged the first time, uh, the reason we had two engagements is a story for a different day, but uh, we got engaged for the first time, and we decided that we, would, we wanted to meet with the director of the school's counseling department. She had uh, what we'd heard was this incredible sort of marriage assessment tool that we wanted to uh, take advantage of. So we, we met with her. Her name was Sandy. She was a very small woman. She probably was no taller than four feet, ten inches tall, but she had, a, she had a commanding presence. She was the sort of woman you didn't want to miss a word that she said. And so we listened very intently. We shared our stories, and she asked very hard questions and then gave us some feedback and counsel. Then she, she insisted that we take this test, the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Test, basically a personality test. And I'd never heard of it, but agreed to do it because she was so well-respected. And so we took the test, and we each got four letters that sort of uh, captured the essence of our personalities, and we were told you guys are complete opposites. You and Janine could not be more different in terms of your personalities. Uh, but we forged ahead. That was 30 years ago, and, and now we have 27 years of marriage, and, and God has been very gracious to us. But I'd never heard of anything like that personality test. Even though they go all the way back, this idea of different personalities and assessments, it goes all the way back actually to 460 B.C. to Hippocrates, um, but it didn't really gain, the idea didn't really gain a lot of steam in the Western world until about the 1940s. And then the mid-70s, early 80s, these personality tests started to really take, uh, gain some steam and get traction, right? So now there are all kinds of them. you got Myers-Briggs and DISC, you've probably heard of that one, Strength Finders, Career Profile. There's one called Four Animals. You know, are you an animal or an otter or a golden retriever and forget what the other one is, but um, so you have that one, and then now you, you, know, you can hardly go anywhere without somebody, you can hardly meet anybody without somebody telling you what their Enneagram number is. So it's, it's a really big deal as of the last 20 years, and, and I think it's all fine, I think it's helpful. The goal is not only to get to know ourselves better, which is useful of course, but also to learn how to play and work and interact with other people. So the goal is to learn not just about ourselves, but how we're wired, but how are other people wired? What is it that makes them tick? What is it that really weighs on them? What are they most passionate about? What do they wake up in the morning thinking about? So these tests are helpful in that regard. Well, the English Puritans had another way to determine what it is that really made someone tick. They said, if you really want to know what weighs on someone, if you really want to know what they're all about, what they wake up in the morning thinking about, what really is a great concern to them, they said, listen to them pray. And then you'll find out. Listen to what they pray for. Listen to what they plead with God for. 
And then you'll really find out what it is that's of most concern to them. Well, we have this incredible privilege over the next four weeks to listen in on the prayer of Jesus. And it's really, it gets to the very heart of Jesus, what was concerning to him, what was on his mind, what it was that weighed on him. And I think it's going to be very nourishing for our own souls uh, as well. So um, let me just give you a very brief context here because we're kind of jumping into John 17. Jesus is in the final hours of his life on earth. It's the night that he would be betrayed uh, by Judas. It's the night that, that Peter would deny him three times. And it's the night before he would be crucified. And before all that took place, Jesus gathered his disciples together, and he had this very intimate moment with them, this very personal moment with them, and he told them some, some important things, namely that he's about to leave them. And they would be scattered, and actually they would abandon him. But he also wants them to know that the Father loves them, and the Father will not desert them. But he will actually send another, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will guide them into all truth, who will preserve them, who will keep them, and who will give them boldness. And then after he shares these things, he prays what has been called the high priestly prayer or even the Lord's Lord's Prayer. And here's how it begins in John 17. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. The Scriptures will appear on the screens behind me. Here reads the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, and that's some of the things that I just mentioned that he said, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in this prayer, we kind of zoom out for a moment. In this prayer, Jesus will ask the Father for three things. Uh, the first request is about himself. So Jesus asked the Father for something about himself. The second request is for his disciples who are present with him, so his immediate disciples. And the third request is for all his future disciples, those who will one day trust in him. But at the beginning of this prayer, really the, the, the beginning and end of the section I just read, Jesus asks for something that sounds unusual, even if you've been in church your whole life, but if you haven't been, it almost sounds crazy. It almost sounds egotistical. Jesus uh, says to the Father, repeats the same phrase. He says, Father, in verse 1, Father, glorify your Son. And then in verse 5, he says, Father, glorify me. Jesus is praying that he himself would be glorified. Now, you won't find this prayer anywhere else in the Scripture by anyone else. Moses never prays this. Abraham never asked God for this. David never says anything like this. There's not another person in the Scripture who says, God, glorify me. The Hebrew word for glory, it's this word kavei that means weight. It doesn't really tell us, it doesn't help us that much. When we talk about glory, we're talking about this display of beauty, of unparalleled, incomparable worth, we might say splendor or, or even uniqueness. 
Jesus is asking the Father to reveal to, to the world Jesus' true beauty, splendor, and unparalleled worth. Glorify the Son, he says. Now, you should know that this request has actually turned a lot of people away from Christianity. This request has been uh, problematic for folks over the years. There are some who said, I can never follow Jesus uh, because of this sort of egotistical request that he makes. I can never follow someone who is so attention-seeking. For example, C.S. Lewis of Chronicles of Narnia fame uh, said that this is one of, the, one of the major obstacles in him coming to saving faith. Now, God would eventually bring him to saving faith, but he said this was a, a real problem for him initially. He said that this constant demand from God that people should glorify him made him think that God was like, quote, a vain woman who wanted compliments. And he said, I just couldn't, just couldn't do it. Uh, more recently, you ever heard of the, the actor Brad Pitt? All the ladies in the room are like, yeah, I know who that is. Uh, um, Brad Pitt expressed similar concerns. Uh, Pitt grew up in a conservative Southern Baptist uh, family, at least for a little while, until he decided he wanted nothing to do with it, and now he self-identifies as an atheist. But he said, he said there are a couple things that really turned him off to the Christian faith. One was all the rules and regulations. He said, all I heard growing up during my early days was all the things I shouldn't do that I was doing and all the things that I should be doing that I wasn't doing. He said, I had en enough of it. But he said also, he said, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to worship me. You have to say that I am the best. He said, it seemed to be all about ego. It made no sense to me. Now, you know, we, we want to try to, when we're talking to unbelievers, we're trying to go to where they are and try, and try to help them with their objections. And I can understand on some level why he may say this, Brad Pitt that is, but he's misunderstanding two very important things. One, because Jesus is the perfect God-man, the second member of the Trinity, what would really make no sense and would be totally ungodlike is if Jesus would request that anybody else on earth be glorified. So that would not make any sense at all. But even beyond that, Jesus' prayer to be glorified was not an end in itself. Jesus says in verse 1, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He's talking to the Father. So you may recall early in Jesus' ministry, he's walking around and he has his disciples with him in tow and they're asking him things and and they're kind of frustrated because their prayers don't seem to be getting answered. And so they say to Jesus at this really pivotal moment, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus, of course, always eager to lovingly shepherd his disciples, he said, of course I will. And he says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the word hallowed, we don't, we don't really use that word anymore. Um, it just means set apart, made central. And so what Jesus says is he tells his followers to ask God to reveal to the world who he truly is in such a way that God actually becomes central in the minds, the hearts, the affections of his followers. Well here, very fascinating, and we'll, we'll see more of this as we work our way through this chapter in the coming weeks, this is actually a model, Jesus is modeling the very prayer that he instructed the disciples to pray. So he begins at verse 1 by looking to heaven and saying, Father, Father in heaven, just like he instructed his own disciples to do. And then he says, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. 
What Jesus makes clear for us is this. The Father is most hallowed, made central, set apart, honored, worshipped, when the Son is most glorified. Or as the late biblical scholar F.F. Bruce says very succinctly, to glorify the Son is to glorify the Father. The two are one. So let me say it another way, and this is our first point. We'll try to make application here. Magnifying Christ is the key to God-honoring and soul-nourishing worship. So I think there are two very important, very practical implications here as it relates to what Jesus is, is, we're seeing Jesus pray. And one is when it comes to our corporate worship, our gathered worship together, in order for it to honor God, it must be Christ-centered. And so our songs and our sermons and our symbols and everything we do are meant to exalt Jesus Christ. And because of Chris's excellent leadership, that's the way it is here. Um, So we see that in terms of our corporate worship, it has to all be about Jesus. Now, this is, of course, not at the expense of the Father or the Holy Spirit. This is not at the expense of Trinitarian worship. As I said a moment ago, the Father is most honored when Jesus is most glorified. And in a mysterious way, when we worship Jesus, our souls are actually nourished. Now, worship is not for us. Worship is for the one being worshipped. But when we worship, when our worship is rightly directed, what we do, what we find is we actually experience joy. Our faith is strengthened. Our hope is stirred. So that's all at the corporate level, but there's also implications for us at the individual level. See, all of our lives are meant for the worship of God. And by worship here, we, we sometimes when we think about worship, we think we're just talking about singing, right? But it's way beyond that. We're talking about, when we talk about worship, we're talking about ascribing the greatest worth to something, making it preeminent, most worthy in our lives. We were created to be worshipers. We all worship something. Now, you may, maybe, you, maybe you're here for the first time and, and you think, you know, I'll, I'll never bow down, I'll never worship anything or anyone. Well, the truth is, there's no such thing as not worshiping. It's hardwired into each of us as human beings to be worshipers. It's who we are. For all of us, there's something or someone that we look to for our ultimate sense of value, worth, identity, fulfillment. It's what we dream about gaining and what we have nightmares about losing. If I can paraphrase Martin Luther, he said, it's where your heart flies when you're in the middle of difficulty. It's where your heart goes when you feel anxious. It's where you find comfort and relief. Now, it, may, it could be any variety of things. It may be your career. Your career is the thing that defines you. It, it gives you worth. It, it's where you really locate your identity. It could be your financial security. You know, things get really bad for you. You look at your retirement account. You say, well, at least I have that. And so that's my safety. That's what's of greatest worth to me. It could be your reputation. It could be your kids' sports success. And I share with a group even this week of having to go and seek forgiveness for my own two boys because they love basketball, I love basketball, they play basketball all throughout, and I had to seek their forgiveness because I had made their their athletic career too much in my own mind, and, and it was too valuable to me. And I had to seek their forgiveness, and I had to say, look, 
you know that what I really want most of all is for you to love Jesus and walk closely with God, but what I've shown you is that your basketball career is of greatest worth to me. Having a very loving wife helps. You say, why is it that when the kids are late for school, you never care? But when they're late for basketball practice, you get really upset. So yeah, that's probably a problem, isn't it? So what is it that really that you worship? It could be your parents' approval. It could be the approval of your peers. It could be pleasure. You think, I must have pleasure. Think of it this way. What is that thing that if you lost it, it would ruin your life? That's probably what you're worshiping. Well, Jesus says the only true object of our worship is God, and the way that God is worshipped is when Jesus is glorified or made much of. And when we worship that way, of course, we live according to the design that God created us, and our souls are strengthened. Our joy is increased. All those other objects of worship will leave us empty and disgusted, but not the worship of the Father, our Creator, through the Son. Now look at verse 2 again. Jesus says, since you have given him authority, of course he's talking about himself here, over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So there are two things that Jesus says the Father has given him. The first is authority over all flesh. This is a Jewish phrase that just means over all humanity. God has given Jesus authority over all humanity. This means that everyone, everywhere, who's ever lived, both past, present, and future, is under the authority of Jesus. The Lord Jesus has universal authority over everyone. The aforementioned Brad Pitt, and I'm not disparaging him and nothing against him, the aforementioned Brad Pitt may say he doesn't believe in God, but one day he will meet the God that he denied. Because neither rich nor poor, famous nor unknown, black or white, powerful or powerless, sophisticated or uncultured, are excluded from the authority and reign of Jesus. And every person will one day bow down before Jesus, either as a glad and grateful worshiper or enforced submission. You will, I will, your neighbor will, your children will, your enemy will, your friends will. There will be no exception. God has given Jesus authority over all humanity. That's the first thing that Jesus says. And second, verse 2b, not only has God given Jesus all authority over all humanity, God did so for a specific purpose so that Jesus might give eternal life to the ones that God has given Jesus. Out of all humanity, God has uh, given Jesus some that would belong to him. They would be Jesus' worshipers. They would, God would bring them to saving faith. They would be brothers and sisters of Christ, co-heirs with Jesus. They would be the ones that Jesus would purchase with his own blood. Now keep in mind, Jesus has the cross in front of him. He knows it's only hours away when he will suffer a brutal death. He will be arrested, beaten, crucified, and experience the wrath of God for the sins of humanity. So this is on Jesus' mind. But he also has in mind the glory of the Father and the glory that the Father has in store for Jesus and the good that his death would secure for the ones that God gave him. Now look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. 
Now notice this is so important. When Jesus talks about eternal life, he defines it less in terms of its length and more in terms of its quality. So now, yes, eternal life is everlasting life. There will not be an end to it. But that's what, not what Jesus emphasizes. That's not even what makes it most amazing. What's most significant about eternal life is the kind of life that it is. It is a life in relationship with the only true and living God. You know, there are some things in life that not everybody wants. Okay? Not, not everybody wants the same things. Not everybody wants to travel. Some people really love to travel. Some people would rather be at home. Not everybody wants to be famous. Not everybody wants to be rich, I suppose. But everybody wants to be happy. Happiness is one of those elusive things that, that few people find, or at least they can hold on to, but everybody pursues it in their own way. Of course, the greatest paradox of happiness is the more passionately you search for it, the less of it you find. It's actually what you find when you stop obsessing over your own self-actualization. But I think there are really two approaches to happiness that we see in the world. The world offers this equation. The first one is happiness by addition. And that is, if you really want to be happy, the world says, you need more. You have to have more. You need more money. You need, more, you need a newer phone. You need a newer car, a bigger house, better food, more sex, more vacations. If you want to be happy, you need more. And we can easily buy into this. I was mowing the lawn, my lawn the other day for the last time of the season. And because I'd waited so long that it was too, it was too long. And so I had these, a lot of grass clippings that I had to rake up and put into a bag. And so while I'm bent over putting these grass clippings into a bag, I looked across the way at my neighbor and he had literally two leaf blowers, one in each hand. He's walking around with two, one in each hand. And he's just, he's just, he has total command of the grass clippings, right? They're just blowing every, he blows them into the street, half of them into my yard. And uh, so I got more to rake up. But at that moment, I bent over, I thought, I'm never going to, I'll never be happy unless I get one of those leaf blowers. I'm never going to be happy. And so I told Janine, I, I asked her in a loving way, stop whatever you're doing. We're going to go to Lowe's and I'm getting one of those leaf blowers. And I did and I got, I got back and I just walked around proudly in my yard, no more bending over for me. But I was no happier at all. And my back hurt less, but I was no happier at all. There is this equation that the world sells us, all the marketing that is happiness by addition. If you want to be happy, you must have more. Now, sadly... The church, many Christians overreact and they come back with a different equation. It's this happiness by subtraction. The church says, if you want to be happy, you have to have less. You have to give up the things you want to give up, alcohol and dancing, have less food, less sex, less pleasure, less vacations, and instead just focus on spiritual things. But Jesus never endorses either approach. He never tells anyone, if you want to be happy, you need more. Nor does he say, if you want to be happy, you have to give up everything pleasurable. Jesus was no ascetic. Jesus was no killjoy. He does tell one rich young man to sell everything he had and give it to the poor. But this is not really about taking a vow of poverty as much as about confronting this man's true Savior, which was his wealth. 
So for Jesus, true happiness is found in eternal life, which is a life of knowing God. So in this context of glory, Jesus says this. It's our second point. Knowing God is the most glorious thing there is. In verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life. What? That you may know the true and living God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent. So at the heart of all human existence is a God who's so infinitely glorious and so incomparably good, so loving, so merciful, and so satisfying that knowing Him is actually the great goal of human existence. This is why Paul would say in the book we studied a few, I don't know, a year or so ago, he'd say, I give up everything. I would give up everything in order to know God, to know God through Jesus Christ. You ever think about heaven, what heaven will be like? You ever think about what will be so great about it? Well, the prophets spoke about the age to come, and what about it will be so wonderful? And here's what they said. Here's how Habakkuk describes it. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the great hope of humanity, to know God and to to know the glory of His splendor and to be known by Him. But it's not just a future hope. This is what believers are promised even now. D.A. Carson, perhaps the most respected living theologian in the world today, says this, Eternal life turns on nothing more and nothing less than knowledge of the true God. And then he says, eternal life is not so much everlasting life, of course it is that, as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. So think of it this way. Now this is not true, but but just indulge me here for the sake of a thought exercise. Imagine that God forgave us all of our sins, declared us righteous, not guilty for any sin we've ever committed, delivered us from the hell that we deserved. He gave us new hearts and new resurrected bodies, and He placed us in a brand new home, a heavenly realm where sin could no longer haunt us. There's no hatred. There's no wickedness. There's no evil. There's no sin. There's no injustice. There's no divorce. None of those things are ever present. All of those things are forever gone, and we were reunited with all of our loved ones who who had gone on before us. Imagine God gave us all of that, but withheld from us His presence. We would still be unhappy. We would still not be fully happy if God were not with us, because eternal life is about knowing God and being united with Him. And the only way we can do that is through Jesus Christ. The only way to know God is by knowing Jesus Christ. And the only way to know Jesus is by faith, by believing, by trusting in Him. So it's not simply an intellectual knowledge. It's not some esoteric sort of feeling close to God. It's not even a, certainly not this pantheistic idea of sort of being part of God. This knowledge involves trust a personal relationship, true fellowship, saving faith. To know God is to be known by Him personally, intimately, in such a way that when life throws us a curve 
and something we never expected happens, we can always come back to this. I am known by God. He loves me. He cares about me. He's here. And He has a plan for me that is for my ultimate good because I am His and He is mine. Now look at verses 4 and 5. This keeps getting richer and richer. Jesus says, I, have, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here's what's so fascinating about this. And this is what I love about John's gospel. He kind of pulls the curtain back and allows us to see things we never would have known otherwise. So before the world was created, before anything existed, there were no demons, no angels, nothing spiritual, nothing physical, no galaxies, no cosmos, nothing. Before all that existed, there forever existed a God who was in perfect Trinitarian harmony as Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father and Son made an agreement before the world was created, a plan was made that the Father would send the Son to die for a rebellious world so that the, one the, fa- the ones the Father gave the Son, verse 2, could have eternal life. Jesus calls this the work, in verse 4, the work that you gave me to do. So before the world was made, the Father and Son again entered into an agreement that Jesus would come to the earth in order to redeem a sin-cursed world. Theologians refer to this as the covenant of redemption. And based on that agreement, again, before the world was made, and the crucifixion that was looming right there before Christ that would take place in in just hours, Jesus says, I have completed the work you gave me to do, verse 4. Now, in essence, Father, I'm asking you to complete your part of the plan and make sure that I am glorified and exalted. Maybe you've read that verse in Revelation and, and never understood it, Revelation 13, 8, which talks about the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And you say, well, how can that possibly make sense? Well, here's the explanation. It was part of the plan of God. And because of that, the death of Jesus was as good as done when He and the Father established a pact, so to speak, to carry it out before the world was made. So the purpose of the agreement was to save a sin-cursed world, namely those that that the Father had given to the Son. And the motivating factor for the agreement, we might say, was the love of the Father. It was a love that would find the fullest expression in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here's our final point this morning. In the death of Jesus, the glory of God's love for sinful humanity shines brightest. This is where we see the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of God's love. Now think about all those objects that we're so inclined to worship, all the things we rush to for peace, security, worth, identity, fulfillment. I mentioned a few, our career, our reputation, our financial security, our kids' obedience, our kids' success the approval of our peers, our pleasure, whatever it is. Well, God could have left us alone to worship those things and die in our rebellious state and suffer His eternal wrath. He would have been fully justified in doing that. After all, what's the very first commandment He gives in the Decalogue? You shall have no other gods before Me. But God doesn't leave us alone, does He? He doesn't abandon us to our own devices. He comes after us in love 
He sent His Son. And in that single act of God sending His Son is the answer to the questions that Christians have wrestled with for millennia. Is He a God of wrath or a God of love? Is He a God of justice or a God of mercy? Is He a God who punishes sin or who forgives the sinful? The answer to all of those is yes. It's at the cross where God's justice and mercy meet. It's at the cross where God actually punishes His sinless Son so that forgiveness could be ours by faith. Those who have rebelled, we who have disobeyed, we who have fallen infinitely short. And it was there that His Son would be exalted and restored to the glory that He had before the world began. Now this is the introduction to Jesus' prayer. We have three more weeks in it. And by the way, the resurrection is the evidence that God answered Jesus' prayer. So what do we do with it? What application can we make of it? Well, I think simply put, since Christ's atoning work is finished and accepted by the Father as such, according to the plan of God from all eternity, that means we can stop trying to add to Christ's work and we can rest in it. Your salvation is complete if you've trusted in Jesus. If you've not trusted in Christ, if you've not come to the end of yourself, turned from your sin, trusted in Jesus Christ, you still stand at this moment. You are under the wrath of God, and eternal punishment is your destiny if you don't repent and believe. But if you put your faith in Jesus, your salvation is complete. You don't have to add to it by your good works. You can't anyway. You don't have a debt that you have to constantly pay off. You don't have to earn God's love or even work hard enough to keep it. When you start to groan over and over at your repeated sin or bemoan the fact that you've been completely unproductive or unspiritual, remember, Christ's work is all you need. It has been fully accepted by the Father, and so you are fully accepted by the Father right now if you are in Christ. You'll never be more accepted, and you'll never be less accepted if you are in Christ. You are known and loved by God because of Jesus, and that really is the beauty and essence of eternal life. You can live free, free from shame free from regret, free from fear, free from the reign and tyranny of sin, free from the fear of death, and free from fear of what anybody else says or thinks about you. Because how could any of that matter if you are known and loved by God, which is the, at the heart of Jesus' prayer? Let's pray. Father in heaven, move among us even now. The sermon, the word has been preached, and we have sung some songs together, Lord, but we pray that your spirit would continue to be active. I pray if there's someone here this morning who's never put his or her faith in Jesus, may today be the day of salvation. And I pray if there's someone here who's just beaten down with the weight of shame and guilt, someone who's trusting in Christ, I pray that today would be the day of freedom when he or she can look back and say, that's when the gospel became really real to me. And that's where I began to experience and really recognize the depth of God's love for me. May it be so even today, Lord. 
encourage us and comfort us and remind us even still. It's only by your grace that we have anything good, but it's by your grace that we have everything we need, both for this life and for eternity. Have mercy on us in Christ's name. Amen.